All right, guys, before we get started, you know the drill. Tell your friends about us. Hit like and subscribe. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at LaunchpadPod on our website, launchpadpod.com. Today, we have an awesome interview with a famous Dark Horse editor, Diana Schutz. Now, you may have never heard of her, but editors are super important to making comic books get made, and she has edited some of the greatest, including 300 by Frank Miller. It's an incredible story, super fun. We got to sit down and talk to her at San Diego Comic-Con this year, so this is from our trip to San Diego. Matt and I had a blast out there, listened to more of our San Diego content that we've released, and we'll have more of that coming up soon. October is going to be super fun, you guys. Thank you so much for listening to us. We have a lot of fun stuff coming up. If you are a Walking Dead fan, this Sunday, October 6th, season 10 comes back. It would mean a lot to me if you supported that show because that's where I work. That's my job. So I really appreciate all the fans of The Walking Dead who tune in to watch that show live. We really appreciate it. If you are a fan of The Walking Dead, give that a watch. Season 10 is going to be awesome. Got a lot of cool stuff and the first episode is going to blow you away. So enough about that. On to our San Diego Comic-Con interview with editor extraordinaire, Diana Schutz. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. So he's Aaron and I'm Matt, but we call each other Roomy. So don't let, if we do it, don't let that throw Roomy? In. Yeah, that's not, because we used to room together. We were oh, Roomy. Right. Anyway. <laughs> we I was thinking Roomy, like Roomy Paul, I think is her last name. She's a poet anyway, so. That is not the reference that no. we're making. <laughs> Although, that makes us sound cool. Yeah, there's, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like the poet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Launchpad Podcast here at San Diego Comic-Con 2019. Matt, we have a very special guest here. Who, who is it? We're here with Miss Diana Schutz, and we're so excited to have you. You instructed us specifically to call you Diana, so now that I've said your last name, I will just say Diana. But Diana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Matt. You are a editor extraordinaire. You've been all over the place, but I mean, you had a good home at Dark Horse for 20 plus years. Correct? 25 years, in fact, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that must mean that they liked you and you liked them for 25 years, right? Um, uh, <laughs> how to put this diplomatically? Uh, look, there were a lot of reasons that I stayed at Dark Horse as long as I, as I did, um, though... You know, when I started at Dark Horse, the the company owner, Mike Richardson, moved me to Portland in 1990 to work for him. And I was coming in as the only employee at that point who had experience in comics. The rest of the company there in Portland did not. But when I say the rest of the company, that was 10 people. It was a very tiny, tiny little DIY sort of spirited company. Now, by the time I left in 2015, there were about 150 people spread over three different buildings. So, yeah, I'm very comfortable working in a small space, in a small and friendly and non-bureaucratic kind of space. I had always worked for small companies. So by the time Dark Horse got to be a big bureaucratic business, it, it was tough for me to accommodate. Sure. Plus, I turned 60 in 2015. I had a little bit of money because my father had passed, and I thought, if I'm ever, you know, when you're 
when a parent dies, you, you begin to look at your own mortality. And I thought, if I'm ever going to do the things that I really want to do, um, that I can't do here at Dark Horse, I got to get out now while I'm still, while I still have a little bit of energy left. Well, yeah, it takes so much to, to make those big steps. But in comic books, you made some huge steps. And, and one of the biggest ones, I think the ones that our fans will recognize immediately, I mean, working with somebody like Frank Miller on 300, I mean, one of our biggest questions, and I think a lot of our fans might not know, but how does an editor work on a project like 300? What was your primary role for, for, for a piece like that? Well, curiously, 300 started right here at San Diego Con. Wow. Uh, it was a Sunday afternoon, at least from my perspective. It was a Sunday afternoon, about 2 o'clock. Frank said, let's get the hell out of here and, and drag me to a bar. Uh, <laughs> this was nine, All good stories start nine, this way, right? Nine, right, 1996 or seven. And he sat me down in the bar and told me that he wanted to do a story about Sparta and Spartans, 300 Spartans who had sort of changed the tide of the Greco-Persian War. Now, this is a guy who's been doing a crime comic for years and superheroes before then. And I'm thinking, Greco-Persian War? Are you out of your mind? You know? <laughs> However, Frank always... Frank always knew what he was doing. He always had this vision of what he wanted, and he knew where he was going to go with it. And so my job as editor really was to make sure that that vision was realized to the, to the best of my ability. And that means at the company, you have to make sure that all the other departments are on board, marketing people, uh, uh, your, your production staff who are going to create the logo or, you know, design the book or whatever, uh, find a printer. When we, when we originally published 300, it was a five-issue comic series, and every, every page of art that Frank gave me turned into a double-page spread in the comic. But when we went to collect the comic into the book form that Frank had, had envisioned right from the start, um, that that book was a you know landscape format sure, book yeah. and and people people had not seen this in comics retailers reacted vociferously against it really because all their racks were built to fit 7 by 10 floppy comics and, and even with the name dark horse and frank miller which had proven themselves. You know what I mean? It's not like I tried to do something like that. Well, with Dark Horse and Frank Miller, we could get away with it. If it and actually I'm not sure Dark Horse, it was Frank Miller. Because of Frank, we could get away with it. If it was brand new artist Joe who I discovered at a portfolio review, we would never have gotten away mm -hmm. with it. Wow. So, um, and so my job really was uh, to make sure things were spelled correctly. Frank's really good, but he, he misses once in a while. Um, and, uh, and, and really, the thing where I worked the hardest was with Lynn Varley on the color. She, she wanted to do a new color process called Black Line Color, and that involved finding a printer who would shoot Frank's art down onto watercolor paper, black and white, onto watercolor paper. And I and for every single double page spread, 
I had anywhere from five to ten copies on watercolor paper, which I then sent to Lynn, who was married to Frank at the time, um, and Lynn would begin coloring. The first, the first pass was never, was never the one that she wound up sending to me. She would do one, two, three, sometimes four or five versions of color before she was satisfied. That's how hard she worked on it. So, look, we're by the sea, and the seagulls are with us today. Yeah, they don't work in comics, so we don't really want to talk to them. Well, I mean, pop culture, pop culture. <laughs> so, so ultimately, you know, we were just at the beginning of, of scanning and digital digital scanning, digital comics, that was just beginning to happen. So we scanned Lynn's colors digitally, um, not at Dark Horse. We had to, we weren't set up to do that yet. Uh, we had to hire out, I had to find somebody to do this. And it was my first time looking at scans on a screen and saying, no, look at, look at this color. You have, to, you have to get Lynn's colors. They were so beautiful when Lynn's first issue of color work watercolors came in the door, I was overwhelmed. I had that once-in-a-lifetime reaction to art that, that really you should always have to art. Sure. I, Just I wept. I wept. Take the pages were so beautiful. They were so beautiful. They were so fucking beautiful, man. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and um, they, they literally brought me to tears. So, so when I was trying to get that stuff scanned, um, I really wanted to make sure that the scans brought out exactly what Lynn had delivered, which was so beautiful. Um, so beautiful that you notice when they did the movie, they copied her palette 100%. Yes. Yeah, for minimal credit and no money, I should add. Oh. Thank you, Hollywood. <laughs> That's, I actually worked on that movie. I did uh, some of the practical effects in it. So did, did, I did not colors. Did? I did but well, you, blood. But that's, that's a, the red was a big part of that movie, right? Red, and red is a big part of the book. And that's one of the reasons why she wanted to do this black line process. Because in traditional comics, you cannot color over the black line. But with this particular process, you can. So oh. she could slap red onto everything. Oh, I see. How interesting is that? So I guess... I, I think the, 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 the person who's not in the industry thinks that the editor is the whip cracker, the person who's looking over everyone's shoulder and who's corralling people to do stuff, but you're talking about taking the time to appreciate art and to allow your creators to do these above and beyond things that are not normal and, and sound like they're taking a lot of extra time and I would imagine extra production budget and stuff. Um, how do you balance both of those things? Because it sounds like you, and I, I know that you said before that, that comics is an art that should be, or should be appreciated as art, but you also, it's your job to make sure that book gets made. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, y you want it good, but you also want it on Tuesday. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, you have, to, you have to deliver when you promise you're, you're going to deliver. And Lynn, who was actually just out visiting in Portland, spoke to my students one evening. And, you know, she hasn't made a public appearance in 20 years. But, wow. but she graciously came and spoke to my comic students. Um, and sh she told them how I really cracked the whip. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Threw you under the bus. <laughs> With her and Frank, she did. Yeah, it was funny. Um, because I don't, that's the part that I don't really remember. Sure. Wrangling them to get the pages in on time. But we certainly, we had a schedule, no doubt about it. Uh, we wanted to be able to release that comic monthly. And it was going to, you know, 
typically in comics, this is why you have a writer, a penciler, an inker, why you have this whole assembly line process to create because you want to get the books out monthly, so everybody has to be able to do their jobs within a month. Whereas with Frank and Lynn, they're doing everything, so they couldn't possibly right. do every issue in a month. So we had about a year or so of of planning time and working time, production time, before it actually went on the schedule. And that would be, I would have to argue with Dark Horse, because they, of course, they want to get it on the schedule as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. They want to hook it up with some convention appearance, or they, you know, they have all their various marketing plans. And I'm, and I'm saying, no, we need time to make sure it's not going to come out late. And I know Frank, the last issue of a series always winds up being double-sized. He always sure, yeah. sort of underestimates how much he wants to get in there. So when he gets to that last issue, it's suddenly two issues. So it's going to take twice as long. So I was trying, I created the production schedules for them, and I was trying to make sure everyone stayed kind of on board, realizing that I was going to need double time for that last issue. Um, so, yeah, you have to do all of it. It's really, you are caught between a rock and a hard place as an editor. So I, I do have a question. When you're an editor, how do you <laughs> give a note to someone like Frank Miller? Or is that the time it's just, you know him, it's Frank. It's, you know, is, is he lo the larger in life at the time? Or do you, do you have different gloves that you have to put on for somebody like that, I suppose? Um, you have to put on different gloves for everyone because it, everyone's different. Um, my relationship with Frank was, was very easy. Uh, in a sense, because he and I had met long before I became his editor. Okay. I met him in Berkeley, California in 1981 when I was working at Comics and Comics, uh, you know, behind the counter selling back-issue comics and new wow. comics. And, and, and Frank was doing a signing at, the, at our competition store. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the day before the signing, and I walked over to the competition store and saw this guy coming out of the store. This is Berkeley, California. It's hot, it's sunny, it's beautiful. And this guy's in a long overcoat, and he's hunched over, hands in pockets. He's got a butt hanging out of his mouth. It's clearly a New Yorker. So I walked over and said, excuse me, but are you Frank Miller? And I got a long pause. Just this guy <laughs> looked at me with that deadly gaze, you know. Um, and finally, he says, yes. <laughs> and to which I respond, well, ah, I'm Diana Schutz. And then I'm, I'm about to launch into this big spiel of I work across the street and blah, blah, blah. And Frank cuts me off and he says, oh, your last letter to Daredevil, man. I just got that. I want to talk to you about oh, it. Oh, so, <laughs> so, yeah, you can find me in those in those Daredevil issues that Frank... But he remembered you from your name? Frank handled the letters column himself. Wow. And in those days, there were just not that many women writing sure. in to comics. There were not that many women, you know... I'd come to San Diego and there would be a handful of us, really. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, and plus Frank's a Wonder Woman fan, so having a name like Diana, uh, anyway, <laughs> I guess it stuck with him. We became immediate friends. So that was 81. I didn't become Frank's editor until 16 years later, 97, after Bob Shrek left Dark Horse. Um, and in fact, I told him, you know, Frank called me after Shrek left and said, well, there's nobody, there's nobody else there that I want to work with. 
you know, you're going to have to be my editor. And I said, but Frank, we've been friends for so long. I'd hate to fuck that up. And <laughs> he said, well, let's give it six months. And then, I don't know, it was 16 or 17 or 18 years that we wound up working together. That's amazing. So, now, did you guys have, like, I know a lot of times when um, either friends or people in a relationship work together, like, I know I would kill my wife or vice versa if we ever tried to work together. Did you guys have that kind of relationship? Or well, was it with the other kind where you're just, like, on the same page all the time? You know, that, was that of course, was the thing that I worried about. And, uh, and it turned out that, no, Frank, Frank was easy to work with. Certainly, he knew his stuff. I mean... I didn't have to. I didn't have to say this story doesn't work. You know, he yeah. he knows comics. He knows how to do it. He knows how to draw them. He knows how to tell the story. Every once in a while, I I would I would ask him. I would say something like, "Oh, you know, her hand looks a little big in proportion to her body, for instance," and Frank would swallow and be quiet. <laughs> and say, okay, let me think about it. And then the next day, inevitably, I get the call saying, send me the page back, I'll fix it. So he, you know, he, I mean, here's the thing with creator-owned comics, the role as editor is really you're a partner in the enterprise and uh, you provide feedback because an artist works alone. I mean, Frank and Lynn were working together, but basically an artist works alone uh, it's a lonely existence, and their editor is a bit of a lifeline to what eventually the the book is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, but with creator-owned work, uh, the bottom line is with the creator. So I could say to Frank, I don't think this works, or whatever, but I most of the time didn't have to. And if I had a complaint, he would think about it, uh, and either he would fix or not fix. Um, in the end, it was his decision. That's that's when you're you know when you're dedicated to to publishing creator-owned work. That's the bottom line. It's their book. And I have a, a two-part related to that is pulling pulling out specifically, say you and Frank Miller, especially with you guys having been friends or at least known each other before you guys started working together. Do you feel that when you're editing creator-owned work, is that um, experience similar to how it would be with Frank Miller? Or is it, I mean, I know every, every artist or every creator will be a little bit different, but is that generally how it works with creator-owned material? I guess ultimately, let's, let's rephrase it. How does being an editor for a creator-owned property differ from something like a corporation, something big like Batman? Oh, all right. Well, yeah, that's, that's easy. I mean, you are still the lifeline to the, to the ultimate product, but talk about be- being between a, a rock and a hard place, that's really, when you're working on something like, for instance, editing uh, a book like Star Wars Crimson Empire, mm-hmm. where, first of all, my boss, my my boss, Mike Richardson, is co-writing with Randy Stradley, our vice president of publishing, um, and it's a Lucasfilm project. The artist is Paul Galassi, whom I've also known for a thousand years and don't want to piss off. <laughs> but Lucasfilm, Lucasfilm has say at this point. They own the property. They have control. So then you really have to balance everyone's needs. Um, but the bottom line is if Lucasfilm says this doesn't fly, then it doesn't fly. However, 
you know, when I'm editing my boss, or not even my boss, again, my job is to try to realize the vision of the artist. So I would take the stuff to Lucasfilm, they get approval, but you, you bring it to Lucasfilm, and if they say, well, I'm not really sure, then your job is to argue for it. Mm -hmm. You know, you're presenting what you think is the way to go. You know comics. They're not, they don't publish comics. Well, Lucasfilm is maybe not the, the best example because they were actually pretty cool to work with. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, s some licensors really want to get involved and they get involved in ways that are not conducive to sure. comics. And, and it's your job to kind of talk them out of that <laughs> involvement. As the editor, that's yes. part of your job. Yes. Part of your many, many jobs. So you not only have to understand the artist's vision, but how to sell that vision to somebody who might not understand it at all. Uh, to some degree, yes, because it's up to you to, as editor to write the solicitation copy. You're often the one who has to write the ad copy. Um, marketing is very busy doing whatever it is they do these days, mostly, mostly social media, it seems. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, but all the nuts and bolts stuff has to come from the editors because, and you know, you can't blame the, the guys in marketing. Um, Dark Horse publishes, I don't know how many comics a month now, a zillion. They can't read each and every one, right. but the editor has to read her own comics. So, at least you hope. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to say it, but there are some editors in this industry who do not read their comics oh, until just before they go to the printer. So, a, a question that comes up, when you said you were working at a comic shop, when you ran into Frank Miller and he had remembered you from writing a letter... You, you were a comic fan. You were reading Daredevil. What, what spoke to you about the Frank Miller run of Daredevil? What made you write letters to them? I've been a comic fan since I was five years old and could read. I went out the best Halloween night of my life. My mother sewed me a Supergirl costume, and I went out as my favorite hero. Um, Daredevil was... I was working at a place called The Comic Shop in Vancouver, B.C. in 1978. And one of the owners, uh, the late Ron Norton, showed me uh, an issue of Daredevil that Frank was drawing. And he wasn't yet writing it, I don't think. Um, and Ron said, you should check this guy out. He's, he's really good. He's young, but he's good. And I started reading. And once Frank started writing mm -hmm. and doing the art together, that book really came together for me. I was very, very impressed. Um, there was something Frank was Frank was a cinematic artist he didn't he didn't need to clutter the panels up with words and so when he used words they had a point and they played off the art in ways that that weren't happening uh, previously when he was forced to work with I think Roger Stern um, but even when he was working with Roger Stern as writer um, Frank's characters danced across the page, you know, and when he created Electra, that for me was like, that blew my mind. But, you know, here we are, man, it's 2019, and yesterday I was at a signing here at the show. <laughs> yeah. Did you see this on I did. Facebook? It cracked me up. This, and this girl is dressed, she looks fantastic. She's dressed up as Electra, and she's come to, she's come to get some stuff signed, and I, and I, a photo of her she looked amazing and I said wow you know I used to work with Frank Miller I was his editor for a long time and it went completely over her head oh, no. she did, and, and I, unfortunately when I posted that some people 
thought I was slamming this this poor young girl, which I'm not. It, really, it's a, a comment about how Comic-Con isn't a comics convention, really. Right. You know, it's, I mean, it is. It's very much pop culture now. Um, and the comics have sort of been left behind in yeah. the dust a little. But I, I told Matt, he told me this story and I laughed at it. But at the same time, I told him, fandom doesn't come from the, the nuts and bolts of the creator. It comes from one image. Mm-hmm. Something strikes you as, wow, yeah. I'm blown away by that one image. And hopefully you go and find out where it came and from, who girl, made the, it. The picture that you posted on your social media, Diana, that was Frank Miller's Electra. That wasn't the costume from the show. It wasn't a later iteration of Electra. It was the, the red flowing bandana and the red crisscross straps like that was Frank's Electra so yeah, she must have designed yeah you know? I guess so maybe it's really really interesting um and but you know what Aaron said is true too I mean certainly when I dressed up as Supergirl at age 10 for Halloween I didn't know who created Supergirl sure uh, though I knew I knew the artist when Jim Mooney was drawing Supergirl. I, I didn't know his name, but I knew I could art spot at that sure. age because he drew her hair in a specific way. So every time I saw his Supergirl, I knew it was drawn by the real Supergirl artist. Yeah. Um, but no, I didn't know the names, though obviously I, I made it a point to find out You eventually later figured on. it out yeah. so you could yeah. jump guys as they ran out of a comic book store. <laughs> well, we've, we, we're, we're kind of transitioned from, from you being an editor into you being a fan. As a fan, whether it's something that you eventually worked on or not, what speaks to you as a fan? I mean, obviously you like Supergirl. What did you like about her? What other characters, both that you've edited and that maybe you haven't touched, what, what, what characters from comics speak to you or what properties, I guess I should say, speak to you? Well, you know, look, I'm 64 years old, so I can't, I don't really read superhero comics anymore. Um, but growing up, Supergirl spoke to me because she was, A, one of almost no females in comics, mm-hmm. right? There was Supergirl and there was Wonder Woman, and Wonder Woman was too old. She For was, you as a reader, you mean? I, I was five, okay. you know, and Wonder Woman was a woman. Yeah. Um, so even though she had my name in her civilian identity, uh, no, I was much more attracted to Supergirl. She was, she was a teenager, which was the next step for me. You know how it is when you're a kid, you're always, you always want to be older, right? <laughs> I can't so, wait for it. Yeah. Right, and yeah. so being a teenager was where I wanted to be, and she could do really cool stuff like clean her room with her super breath. <laughs> One puff and everything was in place. Um, so, so that was, yeah, th- those were my little, little kid dreams. Um, and then once I started working uh, in comics, in, in retail, I discovered the undergrounds where I got to read the work of actual female cartoonists. So that that was revealing to me, um, uh, and 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 spoke to me as as a you know as a woman uh, interested in female concerns, female ideas, uh, uh, the kinds of stuff that we might have to wrestle with. Uh, certainly, the the our sob choke romance. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> our emotional stuff that we deal with. So, um, 
But I, you know, I, I guess now uh, I can't really say I focus on any specific character. You know, the archetypes are always great. Mm -hmm. um, Batman will never die. His his origin is just too powerful. Uh, he's too powerful a character, and the and the sort of the cross between him and Superman, the dark versus the light. These are all real mythical kinds of things sure. that, that appeal on any level, I think. But, um, but mostly now I read either what my friends are working on. So mm -hmm. in fact, I'm reading Brian Bendis' Superman because he's a good friend. Yeah. Um, I'm reading Frank's current Superman. Um, and, uh, and, I, I will read anything that Tom King writes. Yes, Mr. Sure. Miracle, yeah. incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, really fantastic. But um, but m for the most part, I'm reading European graphic novels. Wow. Um, again, because they're they're targeted to an older reader, and I am definitely <laughs> an older reader now. So. But that's do you, amazing. Do you write in letters still? No. Uh. <laughs> uh, actually, no. Let me take that back. I do write letters. I when I read. The work of people um, that impresses me, I I will take the time to send a note. I'm trying to think of who I who I did that to most recently, but I, but it's not it's not coming to mind. Uh, might have been the Little Bird guys. Um, I certainly wrote to them before that book was published because I had seen the art and uh, and and was really quite blown away by it. Um, and yeah, I, I when I first started reading Tom's work, I I messaged him on Facebook because I, and told him that Jack would have just been in you know been so thrilled to to read what Tom had been doing with Mr. Miracle. It was so yes, I do. I guess I still do write letters, but not for print, really. Yeah, that's, that's it's so and that's part of how we got in touch with you. It's so great to reach out to a creator. Because theoretically, the creator has some sort of love for whatever they're working on. And I count you as a creator, even though you're an editor, not an artist or a writer. I think that you're still part of that process and a super important part, a very busy part. Well, I, I will say these days, um, <clears throat> I'm, not, I'm not editing anymore. I, I ended my last editorial gig working with my brother-in-law on the last part of the Mage trilogy, um, which was... Not coincidentally, the first thing I worked on uh, <laughs> back in the middle 80s, um, and that was the first part of the trilogy. Matt did the second part in the 90s, Matt Wagner, I'm talking about, and then uh, recently wrapped up the third part of the trilogy. And by then, I was freelancing, and he asked me, would I, would I work with him? So, so I did. But that's really... I'm. I'm kind of done with editing. My last two projects were working with my brother-in-law and my nephew doing the coloring, which was very How cool. cool. Is that? Yeah, and uh, and the project before that was working with Neil Gaiman and my Brazilian twins, Fabio Moon and Gabrielle Ba, whom you you probably don't know this, but whom I discovered here at this convention wow. uh, and eventually gave them their first work in the U.S. So. Um, so ending on those two high notes for me uh, is really good and I don't nowadays for the last three or four years I've been translating um, 
French graphic novels into English. So, so in a sense, I am actually doing quite a lot of writing because translation is m very misunderstood by people who don't speak sure. a second language. But yeah. it's not Google Translate, and it's <laughs> not it's not a word for word kind of thing. It's very much uh, a meaning for meaning, and things like voice and tone and characterization those all come in in the language you're translating into. They don't translate from, in my case, French. And I stepped into this work because I had edited a lot of work in translation and enjoyed it and, and wanted to keep doing it, be involved with it. And I knew that I could do the translations myself. And so I just started doing it some, sometimes alone, sometimes with my partner, Brandon, um, but every single year since then, I've been nominated for an Eisner for the translation work. So it's pretty fantastic, you know, in your middle 60s to embark on this new career in comics and still be recognized for the work that you're doing. I'm completely blown away by that. We haven't even gone over the pedigree of awards that you've been nominated and won. I mean, I won't even do it because it's a half page worth of stuff. Congratulations on all of them. Yeah, you've had such an amazing career, and it's so cool to hear that, you know, after, you know, you said you were taking new steps into new adventures, and it's so cool to hear that those are also fruitful. And, and it's really cool to bring these stories, like you were saying, bring stories that, you know, aren't the maybe run-of-the-mill market stories, but something that can really speak to people, because I don't think people get enough of that, things that are more aimed at, at maybe more mature people, more people who are looking for the literature or the feeling or the emotion that, uh, you know, Batman punching people doesn't give you, even though Batman's incredible. Looking for, for a story from someone else's perspective is always important, and that's amazing that you get to do that. I mean, it it's, it's really sounds, sounds exciting it's, in a way. It, and it's exciting and it's challenging. And as I was leaving Dark Horse, um, Mike Richardson, the owner, was negotiating the Mobius license with Mobius's mm, widow, Isabel. Amazing. And I was translating their emails back and forth. And Dark Horse got the license. Philip Simone is the editor of the Mobius Library, and he has me translating Mobius now. So, how cool! I mean, if you're there's there's no there's no better place to go <laughs> in terms of translating French graphic novels and right? translating yeah. Mobius, yeah. right? So, for, for our fans who don't know, Mobius is an incredibly inspirational sci-fi. Uh, comic book writer and, and, and artist who's done just so many things that I would has think inspired. That's the one French yeah. name that most co most yeah. American-based comic book fans would recognize the name, if not, I mean, certainly the, the work, if not the name, right? Huge inspiration to a lot of things that have become famous sci-fi works. I mean, all the way, you know, through the... Through and not even comics, right? Yeah. Movies, movies, TV, yeah. television, everything. Aliens, 2001. I mean, he's just one Develop of the seminal, yeah, so yeah many, so seminal, seminal science fiction well, artists. Before we wrap up, let me give you... I'm trying to think what, what question I want to end with you. Um, hmm. Hmm. Let's do this. What is a work that you didn't edit that you, if you could go back in time and be the editor on that work, whether it was that you wanted a piece of it, whether you thought it could have been done in a different way that would have, I won't say better, but would have been different, what's a work that you didn't edit that you would have loved to have? Um, I would have loved to have edited... Two books that, well, two books that Fantagraphics okay. has published. Um, the first one I'll talk about, I almost did edit. Oh. It came to us at Dark Horse. Joe Simon, 
You remember Simon and Kirby, mm -hmm. creators of Captain America, I've for heard instance? Of that. <laughs> All right. Oh. So Joe Simon contacted us at Dark Horse and wanted us to reprint uh, his his romance comics. Um, he and Jack Kirby pioneered the romance genre in 1947 with Young Romance Number One, and by the wow. 1950s, romance comics had taken over the industry. They were they were published in numbers that rival anything yet today. Uh, imitators sprang up out of the woodwork, and so romance comics became the thing. But the best ones, and they they sort of they began to die a slow death once the comics code came in and dumbed down everything. Right. Everything, yeah. But uh, but before then, you had guys like Alex Toth drawing romance, yes. again, Simon and Kirby making romance comics, um, uh, L.B. Cole, uh, just a lot of really fantastic artists working on the romance comics. So I would have loved to have been able to reprint Simon and Kirby's romance books, uh, but in fact, Joe wound up making a deal with Titan Comics to do to reprint the entire Simon and Kirby catalog. But then the romance comics were in public domain, so Fantagraphics printed two volumes of Young Romance anyways without even dealing with Joe Simon, um, which is sort of too bad. And that, that put the kibosh to the, to the official project with Titan. Mm. And we could have done that too, but we we wanted to work with Joe and yeah. you know but I would have loved to have edited that because I'm a huge fan of those old romance comics and uh, and it, it would have been a great joy to to create the reprint that eventually was created uh, the other book that I would love to have edited would bring me back into editing if I could edit oh, it now oh. um, uh, is Love and Rockets, which also happened at this convention. In 1982, Gary Groth walked up to me. I had never met him, but he'd made fun of me already in the comics journal. And he, he walked up to me and he handed me a copy of Love and Rockets number one. Well, first he said, are you Diana Schutz? Somehow he had figured out who I was. Handed me a copy of Love and Rockets number one and said, I think you're going to like this. And... 37 years later, you know, it's like a drug dealer. The first one was free, <laughs> yeah. but I've bought all the, all the rest oh, of them. Oh, wow. And have managed to work with Jaime and Gilbert um, separately on different projects. But, yeah, I'd kill to edit Love and Rockets. That's incredible. Well, the books that could have been. To all of those guys, you heard it. Uh, editor extraordinaire. If you if you yeah, love rockets, we can still do that. If you want her back in, this is how you get it. Oh man, that's amazing! Such a cool thing. Thank you so much for taking the time out here this beautiful day at San Diego. We really appreciate it. Incredible stories. Like we could keep going. Yeah, right? I mean, I, there's a million. You we, see, we have pages of stuff. We, we didn't could even talk get about. to uh, Batman and Predator, which is literally one of our all-time favorites. <laughs> of, of, of all that, like we, we oh, went, yeah. yeah, the toys they released, NECA toys of Batman and Predator, and like he and I have both been standing in line picking up versions of those. <laughs> But thank you so much for taking the time, sharing the stories. I mean, it's amazing to hear all these things, especially from a different perspective as the editor, because, you know, I think people will graze over it. You know, there's a lot of 
jobs in comics that people just kind of if they didn't draw it if they didn't but it's like the perspective that comes from that is fascinating and the stories that come out of that is fascinating because you get to see a different side of all these artists all these colors all these creators and and I don't think people hear that enough so thank you thank you so much Diana for taking the time to spend with us and you know, hopefully we get to talk again. We would love to have you back. Well, now we're going to go talk with Lynn and Frank and everybody else, and they're going to tell us about the Taskmaster. <laughs> well, thank you both, guys, for having me. Um, you know, it's nice to it's nice 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 of you to to talk to an editor. Really, we're sort of the invisible people in comics. Um, you're doing like the the amount of you're almost like a you know we work in film. It's like to be a good producer. You have to be good at 30 other jobs. It's not right. Producer isn't one job, and that's what editor seems like. You're talking about color checking. You're talking about proofreading. Spelled you're talking good. about budgets. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, there, that's so much stuff to do. And you got to read the comics as well. That's a lot. It's definitely a juggling act, but the best editors remain in the background and do their job well. Um, the worst editors, well, you can see it. A bad comic means there's a bad editor behind it. A good comic means there's a great creator in front go. of it. Wow, that's amazing. I love that. That's From a good the sound woman bite. herself. Yeah, guys, this has been the Launchpad Podcast here at San Diego Comic-Con 2019 with Diana Schutz. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Diana Schutz, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. We have a secret handshake if you're in for it. All you got to do is we start out here. Oh, you, no, on, on air, on air. Yeah, 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 we're recording. Okay, so the Launchpad Podcast Yo, High let's Five. show her one first. You start out, and you got to do the raspberry as you go up. <laughs> it's a real professional thing that we came up with. I don't know, we were in college. So we're going to do a three-way three 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 yeah. high five. Three yeah. Yeah, yeah, there we, we go. Do it. so just one, in the middle. two, three. <laughs> <laughs> Give it a raspberry. <laughs> Launchpad Podcasts. Uh, San Diego Comic-Con 2019. Thank We're the you Rocketeers, so much, and we are out. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff.